Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, July 30th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hi, Julie. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everyone. Later in this episode, we will have our Bill of the Month interview with Marky and Haraluck. This month, we learn about a new and unwelcome trend if you're a patient, out-of-network billing by surgical assistants. But first, this week's news. We started last week talking about President Trump's new, more serious attitude about COVID, and we wondered how long it would last. Well, we have our answer, not that long. The president retweeted and later defended a video from a Houston doctor who says hydroxychloroquine cures COVID. Spoiler, it doesn't. And Trump's own FDA rescinded its emergency authorization for use to treat that. This is a doctor who's previously warned that dreaming about having sex with demons can cause medical problems and that the government is run partially by aliens. I am not making this up. So maybe it's not so surprising that after Republicans on the Hill spent many days coming up with a negotiating position for the next COVID relief bill, remember House Democrats passed their bill back in May, Trump blew that off too, calling it, quote, semi-irrelevant. Meanwhile, the federal pause on evictions expired last week, and the additional unemployment insurance of $600 a week expires this Friday. Is there any way out of this mess? What is happening on Capitol Hill? Mel, you were the one who said you were up there yesterday? Yes, I, I was up there yesterday. Um, it, it, it's, it's a place. Um, <laughs> I don't think you can say that things are going well, and you have not been able to say for the past week that things are going well. I think what the conventional wisdom heading into this July session was that they were going to come back, Republicans were going to put up their bill, they were going to negotiate with the Democrats, and then the promise of August recess was going to be enough to drive people together. So far, that has not proven to be enough to cause negotiations. It took a week longer about for Republicans to even get a bill out, which they are very much still not on the same page about. You have... They Republicans. Republicans are not on the same page about. Senate Republicans are very torn over this. You have, you know, a chunk of conservatives who are saying they don't want to do a whole nother round of spending. This bill is a trillion dollars. It's pretty difficult to see how a deal with Democrats would not drive that number up at least somewhat substantially. Democrats bill is $3 trillion, right? Yes, it's like three or $3.5 trillion. Um, A lot of the health provisions, there's definitely, while not agreement, you can see a path to agreement, right? Like there's less, Republicans have proposed less money for testing, less money for the provider relief fund, slightly more money for schools. But These are things that you can probably see them getting to an agreement on if you just work out some numbers. The big problems right now seem to be unemployment, direct payments, and as of yesterday, sort of a disagreement about whether or not to move forward with some sort of short-term patch of doing, as President Trump yesterday proposed, like something on eviction, something on direct payments, something on unemployment, and getting this over to September, and then maybe trying to add something to 
a government funding bill, but Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer are so far saying no. And they're in a pretty good negotiating position because Republicans aren't even in agreement amongst themselves. So at this point, I would say it's pretty difficult to see how they get out of this. I'm not saying that there's not a path. Like I said, there are a lot of things the two sides are in agreement on. So I do think there is a path. At this point, it sort of seems like a question of how long. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that these provisions and these policies that are really helping people who have been really hurt by, you know, losing their jobs, are struggling to pay rent and pay their bills every month, are going to be the ones harmed here the longer that this takes. I feel like I understand what Mitch McConnell was trying to do when, you know, the House passed this bill in May and in June, he kept saying, you know, we're going to get to it later. We're going to get to it when we come back in July because nothing crystallizes things than an impending recess and and a deadline. And so I think he he knew how hard it was going to be to get Republicans together on this. And I think partly they wanted to wait and see where the pandemic was. I don't think they anticipated that it was actually going to get worse in July. I think they were hoping it would get better and they could tell Democrats, we don't need all this money. Look, things are getting better. But I think he may be underestimated. You know, it seems like the president's approval ratings are tanking and Republicans feel sort of less inclined to do all the things that the president wants. So, you know, I know McConnell's sort of drop dead requirement was a liability protection for businesses president doesn't think that's important. The president apparently wants a new FBI building and McConnell doesn't want that. I mean, Alice, is is this the, the final sort of shredding of the lockstep Republicans under Trump? Well, it was fairly shredded already. I mean, we've seen in lots of budgets over the past few years, the president has proposed these giant cuts to all kinds of programs that have Republican support and Republicans either ignored him or, <laughs> or um, you know, managed to work out a deal that preserved some funding. But I, I think... The fear for Democrats right now is if they do agree to some sort of stopgap short term thing or even a scaled down, you know, skinny bill that just extends the eviction moratorium, extends somewhat the unemployment funding, you know, provides some money for testing. The fear is that there won't be another bill, not for months. And so they feel like this is their chance to get what they feel is needed. And what they see is the president and other leaders are demanding school reopen, but there's not funding for schools to do what's necessary to keep kids and staff safe. We're coming up on a giant election and there's not funding to make sure that can happen smoothly. And so Democrats sort of see this bill as the last train leaving the station to get all of these things in. And that that's part of why things are just going very poorly up on the hill. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether the Democrats actually you know, need to worry about the the continued Republican vision of the government as incompetent. I mean, one of the things that we've seen through this is actually with the unemployment that the states were unable to process that many unemployment claims and they had trouble getting the money out. And, you know, apparently they, you know, they have to reprogram these computers in COBOL, which nobody knows how to use anymore. And, you know, the Republicans are talking about this sophisticated sort of new unemployment formula that these old computers can't do. But, you know, you wonder if it comes back to the Democrats saying that, you know, well, the Republicans have saying have been saying for years the government doesn't work. Well, look, here's example of how the government doesn't work. There's also some misconceptions going on. I mean, there's the promotion of the idea that people are chilling at home and enjoying their unemployment benefits, and it's a deterrent to going back to work that is not bearing out. 
also with the liability protections that McConnell is pushing for, there's the idea that there's going to just be rampant lawsuits against all these businesses if people get sick. And my colleagues have reported that that's not happening either. So some of this is a disconnect from what's happening on the ground. And there's also a concern that if you give them liability protections, that they won't really bother to do some of the safety, some of the sometimes expensive safety protections that they really should be doing for workers. I mean, some of these, you know, in in offices, you're going to need to revamp your HVAC systems. I would like to buy stock in whoever makes plexiglass right now. You know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen if you're going to get people safely back into, you know, congregate areas. Um, You know, obviously, you know, retail, offices, movie theaters. I mean, public transportation, there's just, there's a lot. And this is Obviously, we haven't put it, gotten a handle on the, the pandemic, so I think we're going to continue to. Anybody, you know, is there is there any chance we'll see something by next week? Or is Congress going to stick around to do this? I, you know, I think the only other time they actually bailed on the August recess was to do health reform. It's in fact, twice, I believe they bailed on the August recess to do health reform. But Congress rarely bails on the August recess. On the other hand, nobody's taking vacations this year or nobody's supposed to be taking vacations this year. How long do we expect them to be here to work on this? I think what you've seen is that um, Steny Hoyer yesterday pretty much said, we'll hang around for a couple of days. And then what seems more likely is that if they don't have something in the next couple of days, the House will leave for a week with the promise of we will bring you back for a vote and give everyone 24 hours to come back for a vote when we have something to vote on. I think Hoyer is like, we're not going to keep all of our members here just for no reason. You know, we could see something in the next couple of days. I think you're starting to see more Senate Republicans try to propose different ideas. It's certainly possible something breaks the logjam. Yesterday, at the end of the day, I left the Hill being like, I have a, no idea what breaks the logjam. But like at some point, I do think that something does come up. I think it's just a matter of time. We'll see. The Senate is supposed to be in next week, hammering out a deal with Pelosi and Schumer, and then, you know, bringing everyone back in the House the next week to vote on something. But we'll see. I have no insight as to what exactly that will end up being. Nor do I. And I've watched an awful lot of these things, you know, come together over the years. All right. Well, meanwhile, I want to talk about something that Derek Thompson at The Atlantic this week called hygiene theater. The idea that scrubbing and disinfecting every possible service may make us feel safer. But the fact is, that's not in most cases how the disease is spread. Your gym can be spotless. But if one of your fellow exercisers is infected, that is not a good thing. Also this week, KHN's editor-in-chief Libby Rosenthal wrote a piece for the New York Times making kind of the same point about testing, that it doesn't matter if you're doing millions of tests. As long as it takes more than a week for results to come back, that isn't really helping anyone. Are we doing too much of the wrong thing here, sort of looking at the wrong metrics in terms of getting this under control? I think it's easier to focus on some of these things like cleaning everything makes you feel really good. Like, you know, you're doing something tangible. And it's something that businesses can sell that they can say, we're doing all of this stuff. um, So come in, it's, it's completely safe. And I think that that extends not just to hygiene theater, which is a really important point, but it goes back to what you guys were just talking about. Um, 
doing this legislating, getting money to help people is really hard when, you know, if you're Trump and the administration, you can focus on, hey, we have this vaccine that's like definitely going to come by the fall and it'll all be fine, (laughs) Um, which, you know, I don't think is really realistic. Even the director of NIH, Francis Collins, called it a stretch goal. And so I think that vaccines, hygiene theater are things that are just easier to talk about, something that can give people comfort and, you know, we've got a few months before a vaccine is supposed to deliver. That's a long time to be able to just keep saying it'll be fine. It'll be okay. We'll have this vaccine. Actually, the, the thing that sets me off about this is the that we're going to take everybody's temperature on the way in when we now know that so many people who are positive for COVID-19 don't have a fever. That is like the most hygiene theater thing I feel like you can do. Or people getting tested like the day after someone tests, you know, like the Marlins being tested the day after um, everything and then, you know, deciding what to do from there. Like that tells you nothing. You, know, you need you need to be tested. The virus could show up later. And of course, the rest of us, as we, we try to get tested, we're waiting weeks. So yeah, it's really difficult. I thought the Atlantic piece made a really strong case that uh, this hygiene theater is not just useless, it's actively dangerous because it takes resources away from things that actually would help. So they gave the example of the New York City subway system shutting down for a period every night, which they don't ever do um, in order to do this scrubbing that doesn't really help. And they're spending just a hundred million dollars on it that could go to other things to keep people safer. But also the hygiene theater makes people be complacent and not take precautions because they figure, oh, well, they're doing all of this, so it must be fine. Yeah, I think that hydroxychloroquine's a good example of as well, where we spent so many resources on this thing early on, despite what Trump and his advisors are saying, it does not work against COVID-19. The FDA and others are kind of just coming around to the fact that convalescent plasma might be something that really could work. Um, But obviously, it wasn't talked about because we only cared about hydroxychloroquine. Um, And so I think that that's, uh, that's a theme with this administration. Yeah, I feel like there's some, you know, attention resources that we're wasting, too. It's not just money. It's the the things that we focus on and the messages that the public gets, Um, which leads me to my next question. Um, Speaking of doing too much of the wrong thing, since there doesn't seem to be a lot of leadership coming from the Trump administration, or from Congress, uh, we're now seeing various groups of doctors making their own recommendations. We've got one group of 150 doctors calling for a near total but much shorter lockdown. And another group representing the nation's teaching hospitals wants much more emphasis on ensuring a steady supply of PPE and testing supplies. I understand that in April things were just gearing up, but it's almost August and there still seems to be no national strategy. Are we ever going to get one? This administration has outright said several times that they feel the responsibility is with states. So we have not seen the full use of the Defense Production Act to manufacture things like masks for healthcare workers. There was a survey of one of the nation's biggest nursing unions this week, and they said that the vast majority of their members are still reusing PPE in ways that they feel is unsafe because there just isn't enough, or for testing supplies. And that's why people are very nervous about if there is a vaccine, what kind of plan there will be to distribute it, uh, to manufacture and distribute it. There does seem to be a lot more effort on that front. Maybe they're learning lessons from the failures so far with testing and with PPE, but it doesn't quite inspire confidence. 
you actually just jumped to, to my next question, which is that, that we did learn this week that there are now a number of vaccines going to widespread phase three efficacy trials. Given the fear of the vaccine getting politicized and perhaps being announced before it's actually ready, and the sort of spreading, you know, there are enough anti-vaxxers anyway. You could see that people would be, you know, very afraid of this vaccine because they worry that it's been politicized. I mean, who is going to sort of step up to become the trusted person in chief? Is it is it Dr. Fauci? Is it going to be somebody else? I don't even know if it can be Dr. Fauci at this point because he has now become a politicized figure, more so I should say, than we saw back at the beginning of the pandemic. And what's really been interesting with some of the polls that I've seen about would you have a vaccine immediately when it's available is that I think a lot of times we think about the anti-vax movement as, you know, slightly more than a fringe movement, but certainly not the mainstream position. And I think I saw one poll that was like 50% of people said that if a vaccine was available, they would want to wait and sort of not immediately get it. They wouldn't want to be the first person they know to get this. So I think you're really starting to see a lot of concerns. And It's not that this is necessarily, I think, moving faster than anyone had said. I mean, we've heard from Fauci all along that, you know, this would take a year to 18 months, which seems to be roughly the time frame that we're working on. If you listen to him and Dr. Collins and how they're talking about this, but it does seem and particularly among congressional Democrats, a very tangible concern that there is going to be an announcement you know, in October of we have a vaccine. I've been reading this week that, you know, most people are saying we won't know these vaccines that just started phase three trials this week. We won't really know for four to six months, which is, of course, not October. Although I get the good news on the vaccine trial is that, you know, in order to really see if it works, you have to be in places where there's a lot of virus. And we are not lacking in those in the United States right now. Right. So, I mean, I think part of the problem is that the administration and the president in particular have blown their credibility. And so because of past statements that have not been true, now when the president gets up and is touting progress on a vaccine, a lot of people see that and say, I would never take that. What You know, if he's saying it's good, then it must be bad based on things that have happened before. I also think that even though obviously people want a vaccine as fast as possible, I feel like calling it warp speed and talking about how they're cutting through all this red tape and rushing it faster than ever record speed, that makes people nervous as well. They feel that all of those steps and careful vetting is there for a reason and they don't want to uh, cut through all of that and, and rush the process because they're worried that safety will be compromised. So I think it will take a national coordinated messaging campaign. And I think that leaders need to be upfront right now that there might not be a vaccine. Even if there is, it might not be 100% efficacious. It might be more like the flu shot where it works some of the time and some of the time it doesn't, but you should still get it. And so that kind of nuanced real talk instead of sort of the sunnier picture that's been promoted now is is probably what's called for. And I do think you're seeing the uh, the FDA kind of start to um, have, you know, they're trying to make this case that they're going to be very independent on this vaccine. I think they felt burned by hydroxychloroquine and having to backtrack on that as they should. And they're trying to make this different. And so, you know, you have the commissioner, Stephen Hahn, talking uh, whenever he can about how independent it's going to be. And then 
you know, the administration just can't help itself. And the Trump campaign is using his words on the vaccine in campaign promotions on Twitter and other places. And so it's just not they're, they're not helping their case. Um, and I've heard, you know, Dr. Fauci talk about before that they're probably just going to need celebrities and sports stars to get the vaccine to support it. I don't think you can, at this point, you can't have a politician or anyone in government doing it. Let's get the Marlins to do it. <laughs> well, um, w- one thing I saw was uh, people were talking about how Elvis got a polio shot on camera back in the day. And so people were asking, who is the Elvis of 2020? And honestly, I don't know. Beyonce? Uh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Swift. All right. Well, I am, I am so excited that we have Anna back this week because I've been wanting to talk about drug prices for like a month now. Um, remember drug prices? They were going to be one of the top issues of the whole 2020 okay. election. Um, well, we've had some activity, although obviously not as much as we all predicted back in January and February. Um, late last week, President President Trump issued a bunch of executive orders that he claims will go a long way towards lowering drug prices, but maybe not so much, right? What what were in these things, Anna? Yeah, these were, um, you know, they looked at a few different things. One is something that was called the rebate rules. These pharmacy benefit managers who help insurers and employers manage their prescription drug benefits, drug makers will essentially pay them rebates to kind of get favorable treatment to get on your formulary. And one of these executive orders would make those no longer something that's protected um, under anti-kickback statutes. And the interesting thing about that one is that the administration wanted to do this, and then they dropped it because it's going to raise premiums for seniors, um, because that's how insurers keep premiums down, is by using these rebates. So that was a strange one. One of them looked at um, importation. You could get cheaper drugs from Canada probably isn't going to make a big dent in anything. Canada can't really handle our level of prescription drug needs. There was another one on um, insulin and um, EpiPens, being able to get discounts on those um, that are that are applied to federally qualified health centers. And then the other one was called the International Price Index. We actually haven't seen that one. Um, it's essentially been put out there as a negotiating tool with the pharma companies. It would make some drugs that um, the Medicare pays for kind of Um, indexed to the price of drugs in other countries, which they negotiate their prices. So they're a lot cheaper than ours. Not to burst uh, the president's bubble, but none of these are doing anything. Um, He keeps claiming that they're saving like $50 billion or something like this. And no idea where that number comes from. First of all, these are things that he has talked and his administration have talked about wanting to do all of these executive orders do is tell us they still want to do them. Um, They can't actually put them into law. They're not even actual regulations. Right. They're not regulations. They're just saying, we want this, so do it, which we already knew. And then there was this whole weird dust up with the pharmaceutical companies where he said they were going to have a meeting because he wasn't going to release the International Pricing Index executive order. And if they could come in with other ideas, then it would never get done for other ideas for lowering drug prices. Um, and then he said that they wouldn't show up to this meeting. And so it was canceled that they refused to come. I've been told by sources within the industry that they actually long ago had talked about some sort of meeting. They pitched, the White House pitched this week and all of pharma said, we have earnings this week. Our CEOs have to be on earnings calls 
we can't do it. And they were thinking it would be down the line. And then suddenly <laughs> there is a meeting that's canceled, um, which made me laugh because there was also a first pitch at the Yankees that was <laughs> canceled, <laughs> an imaginary first pitch. So there's been all these imaginary things sort of set up that have then been canceled. You know, we're nowhere different on drug pricing um, than we were before these executive orders were released. No one thinks that these regulations could get done anytime soon, particularly if Trump was not to win the election. And I don't think it creates really any huge momentum for legislation as much as um, Senator Grassley would like that. Well, good. You're leading me to exactly my next question. I said, so the drug industry theoretically has another couple of weeks to come up with an alternative to this international pricing mechanism. Um, So Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley said he plans to spend those weeks trying to build support for his drug pricing bill, which we talked about months and months and months ago, Um, except that Grassley in the past month has actually lost some support for that bill. His Democratic counterpart on the committee and on the bill, Oregon's Ron Wyden, dropped off. Now both sides are saying the other side isn't really serious about negotiating. Uh, It seems the chances of legislation happening before November are pretty slim, or am I missing something? No, I think you're absolutely right. They're pretty slim. With um, Ron Wyden stepping back from this bill, Democrats were bigger supporters of Senator Grassley's bill, oddly enough, than Republicans were. Um, A year ago, this bill was voted on in the Senate Finance Committee, and the no votes were from Republicans who did not like the idea that it would penalize drug makers that raised their prices for their products above inflation. And so they were uncomfortable with that. It was a Democratic idea to begin with that Senator Grassley had accepted. And It was touted as a bipartisan bill, and that was why it was going to pass. It's not a bipartisan bill, and Democrats were bigger supporters of the bill um, than than Republicans were. Mitch McConnell wasn't going to bring it to the floor, and and, and still isn't. (laughs) Allison and uh, and Mel, are you hearing anything about any drug, anything being slipped into some other bill, which now looks like the only way any of this is ever going to make it through this year? It's it's amazing how much it's been pushed out of the conversation by the pandemic. I mean, it makes sense, but it was such a huge issue and set to be such a huge election issue. And now it's really dropped off and you see this sniping and attempts to do something. Another thing I would put in that same category is surprise billing, which is also, again, falling apart for the how many zillionth time. <laughs> but that's not looking good or very likely either, whereas that was this supposed to be this big bipartisan effort and achievement uh, ahead of the election. So, I mean, we're just seeing a lot of dysfunction right now. And uh, we are seeing a crisis rather than bringing people together, driving people further apart, or just maintaining the existing uh, differences in, in ideology and opinion. Mel, any, any push for anything else? I mean, you know, the Republicans want sort of non-germane things in some of these bills. <laughs> The only thing that I guess I could maybe see is that you've had some Democrats pushing for certain provisions to provide certainty that an eventual vaccine be affordable. That seems a little bit more germane to the COVID talks. You have had, you know, several Republicans saying, you know, we do want a vaccine, eventual vaccine to be affordable. But the argument for not including it earlier in the year was that it was so far off, it it didn't need to be addressed at that time. That's maybe the only thing I could see. But yeah, really on drug pricing and surprise billing, it's very difficult to see anything happening. We talked a couple weeks ago on this podcast about the Obamacare bill that House Democrats passed a few weeks ago, 
about how that was largely, you know, for Democrats to say, we're working on health care ahead of the campaign. That is largely what I think that these executive orders that President Trump signed last week are, is his way of saying, we want to lower drug prices. These were all things that he had talked about before. If he had wanted to put out new regulations, he could have. This seems largely like, a, we still want to do this. This is something people care about, but not necessarily expecting a lot of action in the next few weeks before the election. All right. Well, finally this week from the category I like to call nerdy but important, uh, President Trump, in between pushing hydroxychloroquine and claiming all is going better with COVID, announced a $765 million government loan to Kodak. Yes, that Kodak, which is apparently pivoting from making cameras and film, not an industry with a big future right now, to making ingredients for generic drugs. Anna, you are our expert in covering the story of foreign makers of drug ingredients. Um, Were you as surprised by this as I was? And is Trump actually keeping his promise of bringing, you know, some drug making back to the U.S.? Yeah, I think to your first question, I was baffled. I remain baffled as to why Kodak. Um, It's certainly to be continued here to try to figure that out. Obviously, they needed an infusion of money, and maybe this is something they can pivot to, but it's kind of not in their realm that I would have thought of. I read one story where they said they have a lot of experience with chemicals. Yeah, I guess maybe that, that that could be that could be a possibility. It's not an easy thing to do as as much as it seems like um, it would be. I mean, when you have to make them sterile versus um, for photography. And I think as far as on your point about Trump, is he um, is he actually doing what he said he'd do and bring manufacturing back? Certainly, um, he hasn't gone as strong on it as some of his advisors want him to um, and saying, you know, federal agencies, you can only purchase drugs from that are made in the U.S. But he is I think they are kind of quietly doing some things like this money to Kodak. There's been money um, to another company down near Richmond, Virginia, um, to make drugs that would be done in the U.S., Um, They have to get up and going just like Kodak. They don't have a facility at the moment, though they're working with some others in the U.S. that have facilities. I think it's it's sort of a to be seen um, whether how it pans out and whether they're able to make the drugs. You know, the reason companies aren't making their own active ingredients right now and generic drugs are struggling is because. They just don't have big profit margins and they're high risk in in that way. And so it will remain to be seen whether a large infusion of government money can give them the stability they need to be able to to do those things that they didn't want to do before because they didn't know if there would be kind of a a market for it. Drug pricing is hard. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Marky and Haraluck, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast my KHN colleague, Mark Ian Haraluck, who wrote the current Bill of the Month. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Ian. Thanks for having me, Jilly. So for the first time since March, I believe, we have a Bill of the Month that's not about a COVID test or treatment. Tell us about this month's patient and what happened to her. Yeah, so our, our patient this month was Izzy Benasso, who is a college senior out here at uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and she's about to graduate. And last summer, she was playing tennis with her dad and pivoted awkwardly, reaching for a ball, and she heard something pop. She had torn her meniscus, which, you know, an MRI confirmed a day or two later. Later, and she needed to have surgery. And she went into this very consciously. She found an in-network surgeon at an in-network clinic at an in-network hospital and thought she had dotted all the I's and crossed all her T's to make sure that she wasn't going to get a surprise bill. 
Well, lo and behold, a couple months after her surgery, the Bonassos get a letter. And it's a strange letter. They'd never seen something like this before. It comes from Eric Griffith, a surgical assistant, who says, hey, this is just a letter to remind you that I was in the room for your surgery. You know, the Bonassos were kind of shocked by this. They had no idea this guy was there, and but they did suspect why he was sending this letter. He, you know, he, he said he was billing Cigna, but they suspected he was an out-of-network provider and that uh, he was kind of, you know, sort of staking out his claim that, hey, if uh, the insurance company doesn't pay me, I'm going to come and send a bill to you. So let's back up for a second. What is a surgical assistant? Surgical assistants have been around for decades. This isn't a new type of provider or anything like that, but it's an extra set of helping hands in the OR. When a surgeon thinks that, you know, the procedure might be somewhat complicated, he can have an assistant that is trained to do kind of some of the more routine stuff to allow the surgeon to concentrate on the technical aspects of surgery. And typically in, in, in hospitals, uh, these can be other surgeons who are employed by the hospital or who practice at the hospital. They could be medical residents or medical fellows who are studying this type of surgery, things of that sort. Uh, they could be physician assistants. There's a, a lesser level of medical professional than a doctor who might be very well trained in what the doctor needs help with during the surgery. But the surgical assistant it has kind of emerged as an, an independent practice as well. And you can go to us you know, specific surgical assistant training program and complete that and, and get certified and practice as an independent contractor or as an employee of a hospital or a surgical practice. And just like we've seen with emergency room physicians, some of these surgical assistants are not all that independent, right? That's correct. Anytime that there's a, a lucrative slice of the healthcare market, you start to see uh, investment in that sector. And surgical assistants of late have become a frequent target of sort of private equity investment, where companies will create a group of these surgical assistants, and their business model is to keep them out of network. And that way, they don't have to, you know, bill what an insurance company would pay them. They can bill whatever they want. And, and the patient, unfortunately, is oftentimes on the hook. Even if they're, in, as in this case, were at an in-network facility with an in-network surgeon. So what did happen in this case? Yes, so Izzy's father, Steve Benasso, who is an HR uh, professional, and he, you know, he kind of uh, watches all this stuff fairly closely. After the second letter from Griffith saying, you know, basically the exact same thing, he writes Griffith back and says, hey, look, I didn't agree to have you there. My daughter didn't agree to have you there. If you are an out-of-network provider and you're not being paid by Cigna, well, take it up with the surgeon. It was his decision to have you in there. We're not going to pay this bill. As of yet, the family hasn't gotten any sort of bill. We asked Cigna, you know, whether they were going to pay this bill when we first started talking with the Bonassos. And Cigna went back and they looked at the parameters of surgery. They looked at the doctor's notes and things of that sort. And they, they concluded, yeah, it was reasonable to have a, a surgical assistant there. And they approved Griffith's claim. Unfortunately, Izzy had not had any out-of-network benefits paid out yet, so she still had a $2,000 deductible for out-of-network services. So Cigna, which they wouldn't tell us exactly what they would pay Griffith, but uh, they applied his fee towards the Benasso's deductible. And as of today, the Benasso's still haven't received a bill from Griffith, so it's unclear whether he will still bill them, but if he does, they may be on the hook for what he bills them. Right, because he hasn't been paid yet. That's correct. 
Okay, so what can people do? I mean, it sounds like this, you know, the father's an HR professional, they did all their homework, and yet they still may be on the hook for what is, I guess, the the out-of-network deductible is $2,000, which in the grand scope of things isn't as much as some of our other bills, but it's still a lot of money. It is a lot of money, and it's, you know, it's one of the unfortunate things that we've learned about the healthcare system and and the way it operates over the past couple of years is that whenever there's, there's an opportunity for profit to be made, somebody will find that. How do you protect yourself against it? You know, ask before your surgery. You know, Izzy did have a meeting with the surgeon's assistant, not the surgical assistant, but the surgeon's assistant himself the day before her surgery. And so had she asked, is there going to be anybody in the surgery room involved in the surgery whatsoever who is out of network? I need to know now. I'm not okay with that. She might have been able to prevent that bill. So it's it's tough. I mean, you're going into surgery. You're worried about, you know, what's going to happen? You know, is this going to go well? Am I going to be able to get back to skiing and playing tennis soon? I'm a college senior. I've got other stuff to worry about. It's tough to kind of think about all these little details. But, you know, smart consumers, unfortunately, really have to protect themselves. All right. Well, yet yet another case of buyer beware. Absolutely. <laughs> Marky and Harrelock, thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Always a pleasure. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? You have a fun story. I guess. Well, <laughs> yeah. So my uh, colleagues on the Congress team have been covering the fallout from Congressman Louis Gohmert testing positive for coronavirus. And it's just really revealed how unsafe things are up on Capitol Hill. The only reason he was even tested is because he was going to fly on Air Force One with the president. Otherwise, he would have just continued to walk maskless around the Capitol, um, you know, coughing up the virus and and infecting other people for who knows how long. He was using the gym. He was going to hearings. He was around the attorney general without a mask this week. They also reported that he was among several Republican congressmen who have required their entire staff to come into the office in person. And the culture in those offices is anti-mask. People said they were mocked for wearing a mask or criticized. And so this has really kind of prompted a overdue reckoning on Capitol Hill. There's now renewed discussion of whether there should be more testing of members, given that they're still flying back and forth every week from, from their home districts. There's discussion of whether that should be happening. Maybe they should just stay in Washington until they get some stuff done and then go home. Although Gomert is one of those, Gomert, I had not realized this is one of those congressmen who sleeps in his office. He doesn't have a place to stay in Washington. Right. One creative suggestion I heard is that they could move them into the page dorms, which are currently unoccupied. (laughs) But honestly, this is also prompting a renewed debate over members of Congress who sleep in their offices, you know, if they could be putting maintenance staff and and the cleaning staff and their own workers more in danger. So the development is that um, Speaker Pelosi, you know, finally, many months into this uh, pandemic, has ordered mandated mask wearing both in the Capitol complex and in the House offices. McConnell has not done the same in the Senate. He says it's not necessary because everyone is abiding by the rules. Mel can attest that is not (laughs) 
true. <laughs> Not everyone all the time is abiding by mask wearing. So we'll just say I saw at least yeah. one house member inside yesterday, right off the house floor chamber, still not wearing a mask. I mean, exactly. Um, and there's ample video and, and photos from the Hill. And I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, as a reporter, have felt guilty for not going up to the Hill. But after this week, I have resolved to stay away because it just does not feel safe. And I feel like my being there would only, you know, contribute to the amount of people and potential germs circulating. Hopefully the the new mask rules on the House side help. Uh, Hopefully people abide by them. And hopefully people uh, who are staffers just, you know, making low salaries and trying to get by can can be able to do their work in safety. Mel. So my story this week is um, from The Atlantic, Why Can't We Just Have Class Outside by Olga Kazan. And this story first took out to me because I sent what I thought was a pithy tweet about a couple weeks ago saying, why haven't we just had class outside? Like we always ask to do that in high school. And I think that what really underscores this story, which I thought was great, is that we as a country have rethought how to do so much in the last couple of months to adapt to the pandemic and still be able to have events and some resemblance of normalcy. And it just really feels like we have not given any thought to how we go back to school and how to restructure that as a society at large, as you know, the president and several Republican officials are saying, we should be opening schools every day of the week. Now is having class outside for the next several months, a realistic option? Perhaps not. I grew up in New Hampshire. I am not trying to recommend that starting in November, you know, students should be spending eight hours a day outdoors in 40 degree weather, but. Or Arizona right now where it's 110. There there are a very small portion of the country where this would be a reasonable idea for an extended period of time. Like where I'm from, Santa Monica, California, outdoor year round. It's something about type of thing like it's just this is such a crucial part of getting the country back and I think that you know thinking a little bit more outside the box and more than just like should students learn at home or should students be in a classroom with 30 other people and infecting you know the rest of their community is sort of a false choice Yes, it does not have to be binary. Anna. Mine is from ProPublica. It's called How to Understand COVID-19 Numbers. It's by actually a former Bloomberg colleague of mine who's now ProPublica, Caroline Chen. It takes a look at all the questions you might have about all the numbers that are out there and tells you how to interpret them and how to handle what we don't know. And Caroline has been doing this throughout the pandemic. So I thought readers, listeners, sorry, not readers, uh, might be interested in me flagging her name. If you're trying to talk to family members or just kind of baffled at ways to discuss this that are really clear, and she's really good at that. And there's more than just this article, but this was one that um, put a lot of it all in one place. And so I suggest just going to see what she's written. I am. I will say I am really grateful to sort of what I call the hard science reporters because yeah. I'm having trouble understanding the data too. It's mm-hmm. not exactly my expertise and obviously it's important. It was a really good story. All right. Well, mine is a piece from the New York Times. It's called Disability Pride, the High Expectations of the New Generation by Joseph Shapiro. And it's about the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I actually met Joe Shapiro, who's day job is at NPR. When we were both covering the passage of the ADA in 1990, it took more than a year. Uh, He was working for U.S. News and World Report at the time. I was working for 
for CQ. It's a really interesting look at what the ADA has and hasn't accomplished in its three decades and how a new, even more activist generation of people with disabilities are trying to assert their rights to live and work like every other American. If you read only one piece on the 30th anniversary of the ADA this year, I think it should be this one. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we are all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Alice? At Alice Wolstein. Anna? At Anna Edney. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.